Hi, I'm Kelsey Burley, and I'm an IVF warrior and infertility advocate, using my platform to spread awareness about infertility. And I'm Elizabeth King. I'm a certified fertility coach, life coach, bereavement doula, and new parent educator. I'm here to support and serve the tribe throughout their journey from conception to bring your new baby home and everything along the way. Welcome to the Pretty Little Tribe podcast. Where we talk about the dreams and dilemmas of life, fertility, motherhood, and everything in between. We hope you enjoy this episode. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Welcome to the Pretty Little Tribe podcast. Today, we're speaking to Dr. Lauren Sunheimer. She's a reproductive endocrinologist in Newport Beach, California. And Lauren, I'll let you kind of introduce yourself a little further as to where you've studied, what your specialty is, and all that good stuff. Yeah, thank you so much for having me today. I, um, as you said, I'm a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist. I am with CCRM in Orange County. Um, I grew up in the Orange County area, so I'm a local girl. I uh, went to medical school at UC Irvine, and then I did my residency and fellowship training in reproductive endocrinology um, up at UCLA practiced in the LA area for a bit and then came back home to Orange County, which is where I'm at today, happily helping all of you lovely ladies out there and men and women and everybody that needs help. Yeah. And she is a fellow mama as well of two young girls. And how old are they? Um, almost one and almost three. Okay. So for all the mamas out there, she gets, she gets the struggle as well. So for sure. Yeah. <laughs> So today we wanted to talk about a few different things, if you don't mind, some of just what are some of the myths that you hear in when people come into the clinic, just kind of general things. So I think this is a really great topic because there's so many different things that people can have heard or have looked up online or maybe heard, you know, from generation to generation. But I think that there's a lot of misconceptions out there. So it's always good to just kind of make sure that we're getting on the same page. Um, a lot of people worry that maybe they did something in the past or they took birth control mm -hmm. and that influenced their fertility. I do hear that a lot. Uh -huh. um, and birth control can influence fertility in terms of uh, kind of in that moment. So if you're having lighter cycles because you're on the birth control, that definitely can be the case, but it can also mask things and, and we wouldn't know it was a problem because you're on the birth control. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times women, for example, who have PCOS, um, they don't have natural regular cycles and they're not ovulating regularly, but they don't know that they think that they are when they're on birth control pills right. because they're having that bleed. Um, right. So it's not that it caused you to be infertile or to have PCOS because you took birth control pills. It's often that it was kind of treating the birth control. And then we only realized it was an issue once you stopped. Mm, okay. Um, so speaking of PCOS, is there, for somebody who is on birth control, are there other symptoms they could see that may kind of point them in the direction to say, think maybe I do have this? So PCOS is kind of a complex disorder. There's a few different components that go into it. Having menstrual cycle irregularity is just one part of it. Uh, it's associated with having elevated male hormones as well. And so uh, you would want to have that evaluated either, you know, talking to your doctor about clinical signs that you may have, like acne, hair growth in abnormal places, that kind of thing, um, in addition to the menstrual cycle irregularities, and then an ultrasound as well. However, when you're on the birth control pills, that's a form of treatment. So you can have, you know, different numbers than if you were not on the birth control mm. pills. So if you really okay. want a full evaluation, usually you have to be off of any sort of hormonal treatment. For how long? 
So that kind of depends on the doctor. I would say usually at least a month um, to get everything out of your system and let your body kind of reset. Okay, good to know. So what are some other things other than birth control? So I think that for people who are out there and maybe have started to to have an evaluation, oftentimes um, OBGYNs and fertility doctors will check a test called AMH or anti-malarian hormone. And so that is a test that's kind of a marker of what's called your ovarian reserve. So the small Mm -hmm. little follicles, um, and when I say follicles, it's what we can see on ultrasound, they house the microscopic eggs. And so people will sometimes get alarmed if their AMH level is low, thinking that they're not gonna be able to get pregnant. And AMH is not a marker of the ability to get pregnant. It can help us in a lot of ways, but it's not kind of the end all be all. So I want everyone to know that even if your AMH level is low, it does not predict your ability to get pregnant. Uh, I think we need to repeat that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And is that something you guys test for like as an uh, like initial test before they start treatment? So yeah, so I mean, different doctors do different things, but it is often okay. a test that's done because it can help us predict your ability to respond to treatment. So okay. it does give us information. We check it, you know, for a purpose, but it doesn't guarantee that if your level is low, you're gonna not be able to get pregnant. It just may mean that right. maybe your dose of medication may be a little bit higher, your egg number may be a little bit lower, um, but there's still a chance that you can get pregnant. Because that's not like not something I ever discussed with my doctor, but I mean, I've got one egg my first time, seven my second time. So I feel like I can assume like, but I also don't know if that's like the leading cause of why I'm getting a low egg count. Um, I don't know if it's just my body not responding to meds or what. So I'm always curious because I'm like, I don't feel like I ever did that test because it was never communicated with me. But would you assume from my egg count that maybe... It's like I mean, safe to say I probably do. Could, I don't know. Yeah, be on the lower side. There's a few different okay. things that we can look at. So we, in addition to doing this test, doing the antral follicle count. So the ultrasound is the best way to directly count and look. Um, looking at your kind of quote unquote day three hormones. So checking your follicle stimulating hormone and your estrogen level and all that in the early part of the menstrual cycle can kind okay. of also tell us how hard is your brain working to talk to your ovaries. If it's really, you know, an elevated number, it's having to work extra hard. And so that's significant. Right. So it's one of those things that you kind of have to look at the whole picture too. Okay. But that's good news because I know so many people that get that, you know, blood work done and say, oh my gosh, my AMH is low. I'm not going to be able to have kids. So thanks. Yeah, it's a scary thing and, and it can, you know, give us information. It can maybe recommend us to be a little bit more aggressive. So instead of kind of trying on your own, we may want to start treatment sooner and it, it definitely can help guide us, but it's not, you know, a 100% guarantee your lowers are low. You're not going to get pregnant. Definitely not. Good. Good to know. Anything else that you can think of? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people maybe are, are not super clear on timing of, of trying. And so we do know that the, the fertile window, if you will, is the about six days or so before ovulation. So for women who are out there at home trying, you know, on their own using ovulation predictors can help. Um, and usually you want to try and have intercourse in the period of time before ovulation because the sperm can live for a few days, whereas the egg is only good for about one day. Um, so just trying to make sure you're timing things well. For people who are using basal body temperature checking, that's good to help establish if you're having regular ovulations and stuff um, and where your cycle is, but it's not good to time when to have intercourse. So people are at various stages in their journey, but that's good for, for knowing that you're ovulating, but usually it's by the time you detect it, it's too late. And so you wanna make sure you're having intercourse before that point. 
So speaking of intercourse and ovulating, what about, is it the more you, more sex you have during the t that time, the better, or what is that? Dispel that myth. Yeah. So actually that's been studied because people do ask it often. Um, and having intercourse every day is, is the best. However, it's about the same if you have it every other day. So the goal is, um, to, you know, one, every one to two days, but a lot of people, it can be a stressful thing if they know they have to time it and do it every day. And it's another thing that, you know, becomes more of a chore. So every other day is about as good as every day. Okay. okay. Great. Oh. Especially in that fertile window, of course. Yes. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people will also ask about like position or do I have to lay flat after or put my legs up that kind of thing and all that stuff doesn't generally make a difference. Okay. okay. Yeah. Cuz I think we all we all have um like I almost broke my neck just like sitting in an awkward position trying to put my legs up in the air. I've heard like riding a bike in the air and I've done it all. I feel so silly, but I'm like, oh my God, after a year of trying, I'm like anything that might possibly help. And it's so funny now that I'm in this community and I hear all the doctors are like, it doesn't mean anything. So I look back and like laugh at my younger self, just like, okay, like I'm going to like reverse taco up in the air, whatever, you know? Um, so I'm glad I did you said it that. Too, and honestly, I think I would <laughs> do it again just the mental <laughs> visualization of if like it makes you mentally feel better then yes. go for it yes. yeah of like I, I, gravity I'll helping the situation yeah. like anything to help get it there <laughs> totally for sure and I know like people talk about different positions and I remember hearing this um kind of growing up and I I can't believe that it's true but it's got to be a myth of like different positions can get you a boy or a girl. Like, I think that's so silly, but I do remember hearing it back in the day. So is that- There's something? so many things out there like yeah. that you can get a boy or a girl, but really, I mean, even when you're doing, so some people, when they're doing like inseminations, there are some people who will do what's called sperm spinning, but there's never a guarantee unless you do IVF with genetic testing to actually test the embryo itself. If, if you know for sure that you want a boy or a girl, then the best way to do that is to do IVF with the genetic testing. Otherwise, you know, certain positions or upside down, whatever it may be, aren't going to kind of get you there. Is and what sperm is spinning still yeah. a thing? <laughs> I wanted to know actually what it was. I was like, oh. what is that? I've never even heard of it. <laughs> so there are some centers that do it, um, okay. but, but not everybody, obviously. Um, and, and it's kind of controversial if it actually helps or not, or if it's still kind of about a 50, 50 shot, but if you're doing it with IUI, for example, you get what you get. So we don't actually ever know. So if somebody knows that they want that gender, then, then the best way is still IVF. Okay. And do you, what about the girl sperm versus the male sperm going faster or slower? So, I mean, there, there's so many factors that go into it when you're having intercourse, you know, the, it's the tubes, the uterus, some may swim, some may get caught up in cervical mucus. So it's kind of may the best sperm win. There's really no kind of guarantee that, that certain sperm are going to swim because, you know, you could have a lot of good male sperm or a lot of good female sperm, but there's also going to be a lot of abnormal ones too. Men make new sperm all the time. And so there's just naturally a lot that are not, you know, normal. Yeah. I know a lot of girls too, that are like, Oh, like, you know, I've been so sick the whole pregnancy. Like I read that that's a girl, like more symptoms for that certain gender. Is that a thing? I've heard that too. And every pregnancy is different. You could have right. three boys and have different experience for each three right. boys. And I mean, Elizabeth, you have boy, like, what was your experience? Is yours the same yeah. every time? I, yes. 
Pretty much. I was sick the whole time with all of them at different oh. stages, but I had for my eight to 10 weeks that I was pregnant with the girls, it was the same. So oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, every, so I have two girls and my one was different than my other, you know, so it's just hard to say it's like apples and oranges a little bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, can we talk a little bit about like the most common questions you get from your patients when they come in? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's so many questions that get asked and I think it just depends on people and where they're at in their journey, how much they know about it. Um, but something I get asked a lot for people who are doing IVF is stuff like, you know, am I going to use up all my eggs by doing this? Am I going to go into early menopause? Is there cancer? All those kinds of things. And so, um, kind of to address those, the short answer is no. So we're not going to use up all your eggs. Each month, the body has a pre-selected group for that menstrual cycle that's kind of ready to go. And in a natural normal cycle, your body selects one from that group to ovulate and the rest kind of just resorb. So in an IVF cycle, or if we're doing something like Clomid or something where we're growing more than one egg, then we're just trying to capture eggs that would otherwise be lost. So you're going to lose those eggs anyways. We're just trying to get them and, and use them. Um, so no, we're not taking eggs. We're not going to put you in early menopause. It's You're kind of on the same trajectory. Um, and there's also no increased rates of cancer. So we are using hormones and manipulating hormones and that kind of thing. But if you think about it, it's just for a short amount of time in the grand scheme of things. It's a couple weeks maybe um, versus pregnancy, which is months. So the amount of hormones that we give, um, they've looked at that too, and there's no increased rates of cancer. I'm glad you addressed that. I've always like, sometimes you see like the side effects too of your medicine and it kind of freaks you out and you're like, God, what is this doing to my body? You know? So I'm glad you said that. Cause I've often wondered that myself, like, are there any other risks compared to, you know, cancer regarding, but yeah, thank you. Totally. I mean, there are some studies that will show increased risks in certain kinds of conditions, but Okay. It's also hard to distinguish, is it the risk because you're doing fertility treatment right. or is it because there's this underlying infertility yeah. that requires the treatment anyway? So right. it's a little bit, you know, confusing, but in general, we do what's safest. We want what's best and safest and healthiest for you and to take comfort in knowing that we would only really recommend what we thought would be safe for you. Got it. So what are some other options other than IVF if someone was coming into a fertility clinic? Because I think most people think, oh my gosh, if I'm going to see an RE, I, that means I'm doing IVF. Like, you know, so can you help us understand what other options there would be and, and how you would determine who's a good candidate for what versus the other? Yeah. So I always recommend when I see a new couple or individual, whoever it may be, um, I want to address both partners. So it's not always a female issue. The male is involved just as often. Mm -hmm. um, so it's always important to make sure that we're doing a semen analysis um, on his end, in addition to the female evaluation. And so kind of once I get an evaluation of the whole couple, then we can talk about the various options and treatments and what might be best. But um, sometimes it's just a matter of a, a woman has maybe ovulatory dysfunction and she's not really releasing an egg at a predictable rate, um, we can kind of help give her some oral medication um, or even something like a trigger shot to help ensure that the egg gets released. Um, and that can be helpful to help her time intercourse or maybe to do something like an IUI or intrauterine insemination. 
Um, a lot of the times we'll kind of combine two medicines. So maybe we'll need to give the, the woman some medication to help with her ovary and releasing an egg. And then we also do an insemination on the male side to kind of boost the sperm. So doing a, a wash of the sperm to get the best sperm and putting it as close to the egg as possible can be helpful in certain conditions, but not always. So you have to have a good number of sperm. They have to be a good number that are shaped well. And, you know, they have to have some function of their own. Um, for these other kind of lower tech treatments. But ultimately IVF, the reason it gets recommended so often is because we're able to overcome so many barriers to natural fertility. And it's yeah. also our most successful treatment. So it's something that we do commonly because we want to get the best outcome for everyone. Right. And it's such a controlled environment in so many ways, right? From, you know, being medicated to having the sperm and the egg together in a dish versus you know, not being, not knowing whether it's going to meet or not, whether you put the sperm up there. I feel like there's so many controllables in an IVF cycle, which makes it so successful. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't rely so much on the body's natural functions, mm -hmm. which, you know, there's so many things that can go wrong. So we're able to control a lot of it. Exactly. So to that point too, can you explain the difference between doing a medicated transfer versus just a, a normal natural cycle transfer? Yeah, so a natural cycle transfer essentially is using the first half of your body, we, we watch you, and then your body ovulates an egg on its own, and that site of ovulation that results in what's called the corpus luteum, which gives the pregnancy hormones initially, um, we're relying on your body's natural hormones. So oftentimes you'll get medications in addition just to supplement and make sure that your levels are good before the embryo is put back, um, and, and then you wouldn't necessarily need to continue as much medication throughout the cycle because your body is making natural hormones. In what's called a programmed or hormone replacement cycle, um, oftentimes we're shutting down your ovaries because we want to keep them quiet and then we give you the hormones that you would need back. And so that's something that we can control a little bit better. Um, we're able to kind of, you know, give you the medications that you need, check your levels, make sure everything looks good. Um, and then you continue that on throughout. So you don't have a corpus luteum or making your own hormones in one of those cycles. So you do need a little bit more medication, um, but we're able to kind of time things better. And it's an option for people who maybe don't ovulate regularly or can't predict when they're going to ovulate. And so they're both, you know, equally good ways. And it just okay. depends on, on your individual self and your clinic and whatnot. I know a few things that um, my doctors checked that I've actually needed to get fixed. So I'm wondering if there's anything else, but my vitamin D was low. Um, my thyroid was checked and I needed adjusting there. Um, is there anything else you can think of that is important to kind of be monitoring like before you start treatments? I'm on the mindset, let's get you in your best, healthiest self before we get you pregnant. So if you're coming to see me in this kind of preconception time, I always think it's good. Let's check your blood count, make sure your levels look good there, your thyroid, definitely your vitamin D. So we know there's vitamin D receptors in the uterus and the ovary. So that's likely important for reproduction. Um, you're, you know, making sure that you don't have diabetes is sometimes a good idea, um, especially before an embryo. So if you have high blood sugar in the first part of pregnancy, there can be developmental issues. So I like to do just, you know, prenatal labs before you're even pregnant so that we can make sure everything is good. If you need a chickenpox vaccine booster or something like that, I like to check a variety of labs just to make sure everything is optimized. Okay. Very good. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And what about like any special diets? Do you, I know there's so many like myths and stuff out there like, oh, the Mediterranean diet will help you or whatever. Um, fertility smoothies, this, that, I mean, is there any truth behind any of that, that you should be following and eating 
hard. I mean, obviously you want to do what's health, healthiest and safest and best. And so I'm a, a bigger proponent of making sure you're having a healthy, balanced diet. So I would say nothing in excess or extremes, um, making sure you're getting good, healthy fruits and vegetables, eat the rainbow, you know, the little color of everything. Um, but the Mediterranean diet has been helpful. I think just adapting parts of that can be helpful. So some of the more like lean proteins and fish, trying to avoid high, you know, processed foods and sugars and things like that is just good for your overall health and hopefully for fertility too. Okay, good. Which is so hard to do on estrogen because I am so hungry all the freaking time. (laughs) I like was joking with my husband last night. I'm like, this is like my seventh meal today. I mean, I just like, I can't stop eating on estrogen, but (laughs) in my opinion is eat all the things while you can, you know, between now and when you're pregnant and everything, bring it. (laughs) Kelsey's getting ready for her transfer coming up pretty shortly. Do you actually have a date, Kelsey? Not yet, but um, I'm waiting for Aunt Flo. So whenever she wants to come would be great. And and then we'll just kind of go into the protocol. But yeah, now it's coming up soon. So and how Good is luck. that how Thank does that you. work with her being on the meds um with her period? We were talking about that previously. Just because it's a little bit late. Does the estrogen tend to do that or it can change things a little bit, yeah. Okay. Okay. Cause I'm like, okay, usually I'm like 25, 26 days and I'm like almost at like 30. So I'm like, okay, where are you? Like, of course I'm trying to start my cycle and she's nowhere to be seen. So. I mean, always check in with your doctor, you know, yeah. your pregnancy test. If that's, you know, maybe things work that way. You never know, but yeah, you know, good luck and, and hopefully it comes soon. And yeah. Yeah. It's funny because it's like all those times trying to get pregnant, the last thing you want is to see your period. And then when you're tr- <laughs> trying to get your cycle going, you're like, please, where is my period? Like, let's get going. Again, just another mind game that we have to deal with. Yeah. Um, what about supplements? I know there's so many different supplements out there, like teas and, you know, things that help with sperm count. And I, I hate that sometimes I feel like the community is be- being taken advantage of because I'm like, does that really help? Are there anything that you really think, um, that does truly help with fertility or sperm count or anything like that? So I I totally hear you on that. I think that a lot of people, maybe it's that they hope that supplements will kind of, you know, fix things, but in general, there is no quick cure-all, you know, it's, it's important, similar to your diet to make sure, you know, you're getting a balanced diet and you're probably getting enough nutrients and things like that through your diet. If you're doing that, um, CoQ10 or coenzyme Q10 is something that can be helpful. I think for men and women, actually it's an antioxidant. So it's good, you know, to try and improve things on that end. Um, but there are so many other different things out there and it, it really depends on the woman too. If maybe she has lower numbers, maybe you would recommend something else, but it's something that you can individualize, but also not something that you need to go and spend tons of money on because it's not going to fix anything. It may help the environment in which the eggs and sperm are growing in, but it's not going to kind of be the magic fix necessarily. Okay. And is CoQ10 mainly just for, would you say helping with egg quality and egg, like your egg count, like before retrieval, or is it something you can continue to take like after you're done with that? You can continue. So a lot of people will recommend kind of doing a prolonged period of time. You know, the eggs that we get for a certain cycle kind of were pre-selected before. So the longer you're on it, the longer exposure that those eggs are having to that lower antioxidant environment, the better. And certainly you can continue it even beyond. Okay. 
And, you know, we're taking all these supplements too. Um, I, my thyroid doctor did say with my prenatal, like take, take it an hour before, is there anything that you like, I take my vitamins like all at once. Is that okay? Should I be spacing them out? Like I just throw them all in my mouth at one time. <laughs> so the thyroid medication, yeah, you have to take that on an empty stomach. Okay. And usually if there's some sort of like restriction, the pharmacist will let you know, or it'll be written on your bottle or something like that. But thyroid is generally one. Otherwise, most likely it's fine. There'll be an alert on there if there is something you should know. Okay. Okay. And so for people that have gone through several rounds, either of IUI or IVF, how do you determine like what's enough, you know, where, where you would say, okay, you see that they're kind of mentally hitting a wall as well as physically. Is it a point where you guys help them through that process or do you really let the couple kind of determine that on their own? I think it's, it, it kind of goes both ways. So I can give my medical recommendation. I always will, you know, see and check in where the patients are at as a couple, where are they? What do they want? Are they, you know, considering moving on because they want to get pregnant ASAP or do they want to keep trying with their own eggs or sperm or, you know, just kind of having a conversation and really analyzing things. And this is what we've done. Is there anything we can change? Is it likely to change the outcome? And, and I'm a big proponent of just talking and having a dialogue and making sure we're on the same page. So certainly I'll give my thoughts on it, but I really think that, that it has to come from within too. And something that the couple feels comfortable doing if they want to move on to the next step. Um, I'll also recommend that they talk to a therapist too, to, you know, maybe consider other things that they haven't thought of before. So really just having good communication and kind of assessing what's been done and where we could go. Mm -hmm. is important. Great. Um, Kelsey, do you have any other questions before we let her go? Yeah. One more actually that just came into my head. Um, just because I do have my transfer coming up and I've heard so many different things about this, but what's your opinion and what do you tell your patients for bed rest after transfer? Like some people are like, you're fine. You can live your normal life. Like, and some people are like, well, I want you to lay low for, you know, a couple of days. Um, what is your opinion on that? So yeah, I usually tell people to kind of take it easy for two days. It's not like strict bed rest by any means. I just uh -huh. kind of say be a couch potato, if you will. You've gone uh -huh. through so much. You you deserve those few days yeah. at the very <laughs> least. Um, the studies have shown that, you know, being on bed rest and doing that, it shouldn't really make a difference. But I, I'm of the mindset of, you know, like as long as you're not totally like laying in bed, doing nothing, but getting up, you know, having your meals, that kind of stuff is is fine, but just taking it easy. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. And any um, final advice, Dr. Sunheimer? I think just, you know, make sure that you feel heard and you understand the process and know that it is a journey and there's so many factors that go into it and just make sure that you feel comfortable with your doctor and, and that your concerns are being heard and, and you are getting your questions answered. All of those things are really important and, and it's, it's a path and there may be detours, twists and turns and you want to have somebody who supports you in that journey and, and good luck to you all. And for anyone who's listening in our tribe, how do they reach you? And do you take phone consultations as well if they're outside of California? Yes. So you can find me, um, like I said earlier, I'm with CCRM in Orange County. Um, there's, you know, the websites, I'm on social media, it's Sundheimer MD. I do offer phone consults. Um, so you can do introductory phone consults. Um, we also have uh, telehealth and video chat. So in the era of COVID, um, we can, even if you live a ways away, we can do something remotely initially and then kind of figure out a game plan from there. Um, but if you wanted to call and make an appointment with me, the phone number is 949-222-1290. And again, I'm Lauren Sunheimer, and I would be so happy to see you. 
And I highly, highly recommend you guys making an appointment, calling Dr. Lauren, because just the way that she comes to the table is, you know, from a woman's perspective, she gets it. She's there to support you. She's on your team. She wants to see you succeed. She will answer all your questions. I've had several people go to her and they rave about their appointments with her. And I'm getting goosebumps as I say that, because I love getting those calls after they see Dr. Lauren. So please, if you're, you know, feeling on the fence about your clinic or your doctor or whatever, she's there. And um, she's such just a wonderful doctor to know and to have on your team. So um, thank you so much, Dr. Lauren, for your time today. Thank you guys. And thank you for the sweet words. I, I'm always happy to help everybody and I wish you all the very best. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Pretty Little Tribe podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Pretty Little Tribe. And if you related to this episode, take a screenshot and hashtag Pretty Little Tribe because we want to see those in our DMs so then we can share them on our story too and give you some love back. Of course, if you have a topic idea or want to be on the podcast, email us at prettylittletribe at gmail.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks again for joining your tribe today. We'll see you next time. Bye.